0: CHAPTER THREE, PART THREE, OF MOMENTS WITH MARK Twain. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. BUCK FANSHAW'S FUNERAL There was a grand time over Buck Fanshaw when he died. He was a representative citizen. He had killed his man, not in his own quarrel, it is true, but in defense of a stranger unfairly beset by numbers. He had kept a sumptuous saloon. He had been the proprietor of a dashing helpmeet, whom he could have discarded without the formality of a divorce. He had a high position in the fire department, and had been a very warwick in politics. When he died there was great lamentation throughout the town, but especially in the vast bottom-stratum of society. On the inquest, it was shown that Buck Fanshaw, in the delirium of a wasting typhoid fever, had taken arsenic, shot himself through the body, cut his throat, and jumped out of a four-story window and broke his neck, and after due deliberation, the jury, sad and tearful, but with intelligence unblinded by its sorrow, brought in a verdict of death by the visitation of God. What could the world do without juries? Prodigious preparations were made for the funeral. All the vehicles in town were hired, all the saloons put in mourning, all the municipal and fire company flags hung at half-mast, and all the firemen ordered to muster in uniform and bring their machines duly draped in black. Now, let it be remarked in parenthesis, as all the people of the earth had representative adventures in the silver land, and as each adventurer had brought the slang of his nation, or of his locality, with him, the combination made the slang of Nevada the richest and the most infinitely varied and copious that had ever existed anywhere in the world, perhaps, except in the mines of California in the early days. Slang was the language of Nevada. It was hard to preach a sermon without it and be understood. Such phrases as, You bet! Oh, no, I reckon not. No Irish need apply. And a hundred others became so common as to fall from the lips of a speaker unconsciously, and very often when they did not touch the subject under discussion and consequently failed to mean anything. After Buck-Fanshaw's inquest, a meeting of the short-haired Brotherhood was held, for nothing could be done on the Pacific coast without a public meeting and an expression of sentiment. Regretful resolutions were passed, and various committees appointed. Among others, a committee of one was deputed, to call on the minister, a fragile, gentle, spiritual new-fledgling from an Eastern theological seminary and as yet unacquainted with the ways of the mines the committee man scotty briggs made his visit and in after days it was worth something to hear the minister tell about it scotty was a stalwart rough, whose customary suit when on weighty official business like committee work was a fire helmet flaming red flannel shirt patent leather belt with spanner and revolver attached coat hung over arm and pants stuffed into boot-tops he formed something of a contrast to the pale theological student it is fair to say of scotty however in passing that he had a warm heart and a strong love for his friends and never entered into a quarrel when he could reasonably keep out of it Indeed, it was commonly said that whenever one of Scotty's fights was investigated, it always turned out that it had originally been no affair of his, but out of native good-heartedness he had dropped in of his own accord to help the man who was getting the worst of it. He and Buck Fanshaw were bosom friends for years, and had often taken adventurous potluck together on one occasion they had thrown off their coats and taken the weaker side in a fight among strangers and after gaining a hard-earned victory turned and found that the men they were helping had deserted early and not only that but had stolen their coats and made off with them but to return to scotty's visit to the minister he was on a sorrowful mission now and his face was the picture of woe being admitted to the presence He had sat down before the clergyman, placed his fire-hat on an unfinished manuscript sermon under the minister's nose, took from it a red silk handkerchief, wiped his brow and heaved a sigh of dismal impressiveness, explanatory of his business. He choked, and even shed tears, but with an effort he mastered his voice, and said in lugubrious tones, "'Are you the duck that runs the gospel mill next door?' "'Am I the—pardon me? I believe I do not understand.' With another sigh and a half-sob, Scotty rejoined. "'Why, you see, we are in a bit of trouble, and the boys thought maybe you would give us a lift, if we'd tackle you, that is, if I've got the rights of it, and you are the head clerk of the doxology works next door. "'I am the shepherd in charge of the flock, whose fold is next door.' "'The witch?' the spiritual adviser of the little company of believers whose sanctuary adjoins these premises scotty scratched his head reflected a moment and then said you rather hold over me pard i reckon i can't call that hand ante and pass the buck how i beg pardon what did i understand you to say well you've rather got the bulge on me or maybe we've both got the bulge somehow you don't smoke me and i don't smoke you you see one of the boys has passed in his checks and we want to give him a good send-off and so the thing i'm on now is to roust out somebody to jerk a little chin-music for us and waltz him through handsome my friend i seem to grow more and more bewildered your observations are wholly incomprehensible to me cannot you simplify them in some way At first I thought, perhaps, I understood you, but I grope now. Would it not expedite matters if you restricted yourself to categorical statements of facts, unencumbered with obstructive accumulations of metaphor and allegory? Another pause, and more reflection. Then said Scotty, I'll have to pass, I judge. How? You've raised me out, Pard. I still fail to catch your meaning." Why, that last lead of yourn is too many for me. That's the idea. I can't neither trump nor follow suit. The clergyman sank back in his chair, perplexed. Scotty leaned his head on his hand and gave himself up to thought. Presently his face came up, sorrowful but confident. "'I've got it now, so you can savvy,' he said. "'What we want is a gospel sharp, see?' "'A what?' "'Gospel-sharp. Parson.' "'Oh! why did you not say so before? "'I am a clergyman, a parson.' "'Now you talk. "'You see my blind and straddle it like a man. "'Put it there,' extending a brawny paw, "'which closed over the minister's small hand, "'and gave it a shake indicative of fraternal sympathy "'and fervent gratification. "'Now we're all right, Pard,' Let's start fresh. Don't you mind my shuffling a little, because we're in a power of trouble. You see, one of the boys has gone up the flume. Gone where? Up the flume. Throwed up the sponge, you understand. Thrown up the sponge? Yes, kicked the bucket. Ah, has departed to that mysterious country from whose born no traveler returns. Return? I reckon not why pard he's dead yes i understand oh you do well i thought maybe you might be getting tangled some more yes you see he's dead again again why has he ever been dead before dead before no do you reckon a man has got as many lives as a cat but you bet you he's awful dead now poor old boy "'and I wish I'd never seen this day. "'I don't want no better friend than Buck Fanshaw. "'I know him by the back, "'and when I know a man like him, I freeze to him. "'You hear me? Take him all around, pard. "'There never was a bullier man in the mines. "'No man ever knowed Buck Fanshaw to go back on a friend. "'But it's all up, you know. It's all up. "'It ain't no use. They've scooped him.' "'Scooped him?' Yes, death has. Well, 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 we've got to give him up. Yes, indeed. It's a kind of a hard world after all, ain't it? But, Pard, he was a rustler. You ought to see him get started once. He was a bully boy with a glass eye. Just spit in his face and give him room according to his strength, and it was just beautiful to see him peel and go in. He was the worst son of a thief that ever drawed breath. Pard, he was on it. He was on it bigger than an engine. On it? On what? On the chute, on the shoulder, on the fight, you understand. He didn't give a continental for anybody. Beg your pardon, friend, for coming so near saying a cuss word. But you see, I'm on an awful strain in this palaver, on account of having to cramp down and draw everything so mild. But we've got to give him up. "'There ain't any getting around that, I don't reckon. "'Now if we can get you to help plant him—' "'Preach the funeral discourse. "'Assist at the obsequies.' "'Obsequies is good. "'Yes, that's it. "'That's our little game. "'We are going to get the thing up regardless, you know. "'He was always nifty himself, "'and so you bet you his funeral ain't going to be no slouch.' solid silver door plate on his coffin six plumes on the hearse and one nigger on the box in a biled shirt and a plug hat how's that for high and we'll take care of you pard we'll fix you all right there'll be a carriage for you and whatever you want you just scape out and we'll tend to it we've got a shebang fixed up for you to stand behind in number one's house and don't you be afraid "'Just go in and toot your horn if you don't sell a clam. "'Put Buck through as bully as you can, Pard, "'for anybody that knowed him will tell you that he was one of the whitest men "'that was ever in the mines. "'You can't draw it too strong. "'He never could stand it to see things going wrong. "'He's done more to make this town quiet and peaceable than any man in it. "'I've seen him lick four greasers in eleven minutes myself.' If a thing wanted regulating, he war not a man to go browsing around for somebody to do it, but he would prance in and regulate it himself. He war not a Catholic. He was down on em. His word was, no Irish need apply. But it didn't make no difference about that when it came down to what a man's rights was. And so, when some roughs jumped the Catholic boneyard and started in to stake out town lots in it, he went for em, and he cleaned em too. I was there, pard, and I seen it myself. That was very well indeed. At least the impulse was, whether the act was strictly defensible or not. Had deceased any religious convictions? That is to say, did he feel a dependence upon, or acknowledge allegiance to a higher power? More reflection. I reckon you've stumped me again, pard. "'Could you say it over once more, and say it slow?' "'Well, to simplify it somewhat, was he, or, rather, had he ever been connected with any organization, sequestered for secular concerns, and devoted to self-sacrifice in the interests of morality?' "'All down but nine. Set him up on the other alley, pard.' "'What did I understand you to say?' why you're most too many for me you know when you get in with your left i hunt grass every time every time you draw you fill but i don't seem to have any luck let's have a new deal how begin again that's it very well was he a good man and-there i see that don't put up another chip till i look at my hand a good man says you pard It ain't no name for it. He was the best man that ever, pard, you would have doted on that man. He could lamb any galoot of his inches in America. It was him that put down the riot last election before it got a start, and everybody said he was the only man that could have done it. He waltzed in with a spanner in one hand and a trumpet in the other, and sent fourteen men home on a shutter in less than three minutes. He had that riot all broke up, and prevented nice before anybody ever got a chance to strike a blow. He was always for peace, and he would have peace. He could not stand disturbances. Pard, he was a great loss to this town. It would please the boys if you would chip in something like that and do him justice. Here, once when the mix got to throwing stones through the Methodists' Sunday-school windows, Buck Fanshaw all of his own notion, shut up his saloon and took a couple of six-shooters and mounted guard over the Sunday school. Says he, no Irish need apply. And they didn't. He was the bulliest man in the mountains, Pard. He could run faster, jump higher, hit harder, and hold more tanglefoot whiskey without spilling than any man in seventeen counties. Put that in, Pard, "'It'll please the boys more than anything you could say. "'And you can say, Pard, that he never shook his mother.' "'Never shook his mother?' "'That's it. Any of the boys will tell you so.' "'Well, but why should he shake her?' "'That's what I say. But some people does.' "'Not people of any repute. "'Well, some averages pretty so-so.' in my opinion the man that would offer personal violence to his own mother ought to cheese it pard you've banked your ball clean outside the string what i was driving at was that he never throwed off on his mother don't you see no indeedy he give her a house to live in and town lots and plenty of money and he looked after her and took care of her all the time and when she was down with the smallpox "'I'm damned if he didn't set up nights and nurse her himself. "'Beg your pardon for saying it, but it hopped out too quick for yours truly. "'You've treated me like a gentleman, pard, and I ain't the man to hurt your feelings intentional. "'I think you're white. I think you're a square man, pard. "'I like you, and I'll lick any man that don't. "'I'll lick him till he can't tell himself from a last year's corpse. Put it there.' another fraternal handshake and exit the obsequies were all that the boys could desire such a marvel of funeral pomp had never been seen in virginia the plumed hearse the dirge breathing brass bands the closed marts of business the flags drooping at half-mast the long plodding procession of uniformed secret societies military battalions and fire companies draped engines carriages of officials and citizens in vehicles and on foot attracted multitudes of spectators to the sidewalks roofs and windows and for years afterward the degree of grandeur attained by any civic display in virginia was determined by comparison with buck fanshaw's funeral scotty briggs as a pallbearer and a mourner occupied a prominent place at the funeral AND WHEN THE SERMON WAS FINISHED, AND THE LAST SENTENCE OF THE PRAYER FOR THE DEAD MAN'S SOUL ASCENDED, HE RESPONDED IN A LOW VOICE, BUT WITH FEELING. AMEN. NO IRISH NEED APPLY. AN ABANDONED TOWN WE LIVED IN A SMALL CABIN ON A VERDANT HILLSIDE, AND THERE WERE NOT FIVE OTHER CABINS IN VIEW OVER THE WIDE EXPANSE OF HILL AND FOREST. Yet a flourishing city of two or three thousand population had occupied this grassy dead solitude during the flush times of twelve or fifteen years before, and where our cabin stood had once been the heart of the teeming hive, the center of the city. When the mines gave out, the town fell into decay, and in a few years wholly disappeared, streets, dwellings, shops, everything, and left no sign. The grassy slopes were as green and smooth and desolate of life as if they had never been disturbed. The mere handful of miners, still remaining, had seen the town spring up, spread, grow, and flourish in its pride, and they had seen it sicken and die, and pass away like a dream. With it their hopes had died, and their zest of life. They had long ago resigned themselves to their exile and ceased to correspond with their distant friends or turn longing eyes toward their distant homes they had accepted banishment forgotten the world and been forgotten of the world they were far from telegraphs and railroads and they stood as it were in a living grave dead to the events that stirred the globe's great populations dead to the common interests of men isolated and outcast from brotherhood with their kind it was the most singular and almost the most touching and melancholy exile that fancy can imagine a hawaiian temple near by is an interesting ruin the meagre remains of an ancient temple a place where human sacrifices were offered up in those old bygone days when the simple child of nature yielding momentarily to sin when sorely tempted acknowledged his error when calm reflection had shown it to him and came forward with noble frankness and offered up his grandmother as an atoning sacrifice in those old days when the luckless sinner could keep on cleansing his conscience and achieving periodical happiness as long as his relations held out long long before the missionaries braved a thousand privations to come and make them permanently miserable by telling them how beautiful and how blissful a place heaven is and how nearly impossible it is to get there and showed the poor native how dreary a place perdition is and what unnecessarily liberal facilities there are going to it showed him how in his ignorance he had gone and fooled away all his kinsfolk to no purpose showed him what rapture it is to work all day long for fifty cents to buy food for next day with as compared with fishing for a pastime and lolling in the shade through eternal summer and eating of the bounty that nobody labored to provide but nature. How sad it is to think of the multitudes who have gone to their graves in this beautiful island and never knew there was a hell. A Hawaiian Statesman The president is the king's father. He is an erect, strongly built, massive-featured, white-haired, tawny old gentleman of eighty years of age, or thereabouts. He was simply but well-dressed, in a blue cloth coat and white vest, and white pantaloons without spot, dust, or blemish upon them. He bears himself with a calm, stately dignity, and is a man of noble presence. He was a young man and a distinguished warrior under that terrific fighter, Kamehameha I, more than half a century ago. A knowledge of his career suggested some such thought as this this man naked as the day he was born and war club and spear in hand has charged at the head of a horde of savages against other hordes of savages more than a generation and a half ago and revelled in slaughter and carnage has worshipped wooden images on his devout knees has seen hundreds of his race offered up in heathen temples as sacrifices to wooden idols at a time when no missionary's foot had ever pressed this soil and he had never heard of the white man's god has believed his enemy could secretly pray him to death has seen the day in his childhood when it was a crime punishable by death for a man to eat with his wife or for a plebeian to let his shadow fall upon the king and now look at him an educated christian neatly and handsomely dressed a high-minded elegant gentleman a traveller in some degree and one who has been the honoured guest of royalty in europe a man practised in holding the reins of an enlightened government and well versed in the politics of his country and in general practical information look at him sitting there presiding over the deliberations of a legislative body among whom are white men a grave dignified statesmanlike personage and as seemingly natural and fitted to the place as if he had been born in it and had never been out of it in his lifetime how the experiences of this old man's eventful life shame the cheap inventions of romance hawaiian religion quite a broad tract of land near the temple extending from the sea to the mountain was sacred to the god lono in olden times so sacred that if a common native set his sacrilegious foot upon it it was judicious for him to make his will because his time had come he might go around it by water but he could not cross it it was well sprinkled with pagan temples and stocked with awkward homely idols carved out of logs of wood. There was a temple devoted to prayers for rain, and with fine sagacity it was placed at a point so well up on the mountain side that if you prayed there twenty-four times a day for rain, you would be likely to get it every time. You would seldom get to your Amen before you would have to hoist your umbrella. The Crater of Haleakala Presently, vagrant white clouds came drifting along, high over the sea and the valley. Then they came in couples and groups, then in imposing squadrons. Gradually joining their forces, they banked themselves solidly together, a thousand feet under us, and totally shut out land and ocean. Not a vestige of anything was left in view, but just a little of the rim of the crater, circling away from the pinnacle, whereon we sat for a ghostly procession of wanderers from the filmy hosts without, had drifted through a chasm in the crater wall, and filed round and round, and gathered and sunk and blended together, till the abyss was stored to the brim with a fleecy fog. Thus banked, motion ceased, and silence reigned clear to the horizon, league on league, the snowy floor stretched without a break, not level but in rounded folds, with shallow creases between, and here and there stately piles of vapory architecture lifting themselves aloft out of the common plain, some near at hand, some in the middle distances, and others relieving the monotony of the remote solitudes. There was little conversation, for the impressive scene overawed speech. I felt like the last man, neglected of the judgment, and left pinnacled in mid-heaven, a forgotten relic of a vanished world. End of chapter 3 from Roughing It